0: This is an Equity Bates Media Podcast.
1: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins. Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com/slash Wondersuite.
2: Equity
1: I will say this about investing. Everything you do on is cumulative. What well, I learned at
2: 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going?
3: Very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode and this interview that we've got coming up. It's a, it's a real privilege that you and I have here at Equity Mates that we get to, I guess, speak to experts all around the world, get to learn in public, and this is certainly an interview where we learnt a lot.
2: Absolutely. Opened up my mind to a whole raft of things to ponder. We were lucky enough to be joined by Kenneth Stanley, who is a former professor of computer science at the University of Central Florida and most recently led the open-endedness team at OpenAI. Kenneth is the co-author of Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, The Myth of the Objective. And we cover a lot of ground.
3: We first came across Kenneth uh, in Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast, and it was a fascinating conversation and one that we wanted to pick up on and run with, especially because, Bryce, you are the ultimate planner, the ultimate strategist. Yes. Goals on goals on goals on goals. Love
2: goals, love objectives. So, this interview opened my mind to a new way of thinking. Really? Yeah, yeah. It was... um, I'm not to say that I'm going to change how we run anything, but it opened up my mind to a new way of thinking.
3: And so for equity mates uh, who are used to like straight investing content, this will be a little bit different. Uh, We do speak about some well-known companies. We speak about Apple. We speak about Tesla. Zuckerberg. We we speak about a very interesting uh, bit about Mark Zuckerberg and his plans in the metaverse. But Kenneth isn't a investor he's an AI researcher a former computer science professor and that's really where we start we start with the book we go into AI yeah uh, for me it was a fascinating conversation AI is not coming it's here we're seeing more and more I guess use cases for it and so this is a really interesting conversation with someone who's on the front lines
2: Absolutely. It is our pleasure to welcome Kenneth Stanley to the studio. Kenneth, welcome.
3: Thank
4: you. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: So Kenneth is a former professor of computer science at the University of Central Florida and most recently led the open-endedness team at OpenAI. Kenneth is the co-author of Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, The Myth of the Objective. And to tease you guys, he's currently starting something new and that's all we can say for now. So we might be able to get into that a (laughs) little. bit later as well. But uh, very excited for this interview. As Ren said, we're going to be covering off all things AI, what the future looks like, as well as uh, the objective paradox, which is where we'll start.
3: Yeah, Kenneth, we want to start with your book and uh, the objective paradox. And uh, when I first came across this idea, I loved it. And partly because Bryce is a meticulous planner. Bryce loves a a timeline and a strategy and a spreadsheet. And I came across your book, uh, introduced this idea of the objective paradox and really explained why greatness cannot be planned. And so we really want to start there. And let's start with that premise. Why can greatness not be planned?
4: Yeah, so this is a very counterintuitive idea that we kind of ran across really um, serendipitously by doing research in artificial intelligence. And so normally you wouldn't expect like, that research in artificial intelligence would lead to general insights about life or pursuing your objectives or things like that. So it's quite surprising, but it exposed, this research exposed this, this problem that setting an objective, which if you're wondering why it would come up in AI, it's like basically that's what AI algorithms always do or machine learning algorithms almost always say, here's the objective as in like, this is the thing that I'm trying to get the system to learn to do. And then you try to move towards the objective. And so these kind of things that we're, we're really used to doing And what we discover is that sometimes setting an objective can actually be really bad for you. Um, In fact, setting an objective can prevent you from achieving the objective, but not only prevent you from achieving the objective, but also prevent you from achieving anything else that might be interesting that you could have achieved. So it's, it's quite a serious issue, you know, because if this is like a ubiquitous principle, like you said, I sometimes call it the objective paradox then this affects like throughout our culture, like the way that we do things and as individuals, as institutions, we're just saturated in objectives. And so we need to, I think, try to grapple with the implications of this, if this is right.
2: Yeah, it kind of freaks me out thinking about this, (laughs) because as Alex said at the top, love objectives, love goals. So I'm interested to unpack this a little bit more. Before we do, are there any sort of clear examples that you could use to help illustrate this premise, both in AI and perhaps more in general sort of society? Yeah. So
4: maybe I'll take a general society just to make it as general as possible. So one, one thing that I should I should note, which is kind of a caveat to this point, is that when I'm speaking about objectives here, I'm speaking about really ambitious objectives. That's why like the title of the book is Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned. So like things that are modest. They do work as objectives. You know, you can continue to like have your planning book and things like that and, and have it usually work <laughs> like, if you're just trying to do something modest. This is about like innovation and discovery, like really kind of blue sky type of things, things that we wish we could do, but we don't know how to do them. Like something like curing cancer, creating artificial general intelligence, um, really out there stuff uh, as an individual, it might be something like, you know, making a billion dollars or it might be something like finding love. So like there are things where there's not an obvious path. If it's something like, uh, you know, you want to lose weight, then that's a kind of a goal that uh, while it, it may feel ambitious to you, it's actually something that many people have done and there are, there are known stepping stones to follow. Um, so that's not the kind of thing where I'm saying you shouldn't have an objective. But so where we're talking about this blue sky stuff, so let's think about something really blue sky, like go back to say the year, let's say 1850. And let's say that the objective would be to build a computer. Um, of course, there were people actually talking about computation around those dates. Um, they didn't have any idea how to build something like that, at least not something that was practical, um, although there was some uh, kind of mechanical ideas that were fanciful. But let's imagine we wanted to build something like the digital computers that we have today, or even, say, in the 1950s. Um, but we're in the year 1850. Now, the, the premise here is that that would actually be a bad idea. That'd be a bad idea to have that objective, to set that objective. Now, it's clearly blue sky. It's very ambitious. Like, there's nothing like that in the world. You can, can't imagine like a machine that does all this stuff by itself um, in the year 1850. But you might say, well, if we did realize we could do that, which obviously you can since it's been done, uh, why not just get all the geniuses of the day together and just have a good project? We could just do it, right? Like, why wouldn't we do it then? We should have just done it earlier. Well, the internet would be a lot better by now. <laughs> um, well, uh, so, so, so the problem is, here's the problem. It turns out that people at that time were researching something called vacuum tubes. Um, there were a lot of smart people researching vacuum tubes. This was for the purposes of doing electrical experiments and like learning about electrical properties. Um, and uh, of course, we've heard of vacuum tubes. And the interesting thing about vacuum tubes is that they were inside the first computers, um, and so like, you basically needed them to get to the first computers, the first computers of the 1940s, um, like the ENIAC, for example. Um, and so people were looking at vacuum tubes. But guess what? Here's the part where the paradox comes in. The people who were looking at these vacuum tubes, they were not trying to build computers. And you see, here's a problem because like if we took those people who presumably are generally pretty smart people and we said there's a better thing to look at, like these vacuum tubes are cool, but they're kind of boring if you compare it to like a computer, like that'd be way more cool than a vacuum tube. Well, then you take them off the vacuum tubes. And how, here we have a problem now because like the stepping stone that we needed to build computers, no one is working on anymore. And now they actually are working on computers, but they don't have the thing that they need to build it. So it is a fut- it's an act of futility and none of it will lead to anything. And so we've destroyed our ability to get to computation by making everybody work on computation. <laughs> um, and this is an example of the objective paradox. And What's so um, disturbing about this is that this is a general issue across all invention. I would even claim it applies to every single interesting thing that's ever been invented. Now, if you look back, like you take any invention, you look back a few years back, it might look like the, there was an objective and it worked out. You know, people give examples and I, and I can always try to back up and, and show how it doesn't really work that way. But at first it looks like it does because that's the mythology that we're fed. Like everybody just has a, like a really strong personality, sets an objective and then just like defiantly moves toward the objective. Like We can do this. Um, but the thing is that actually if you go back far enough, there's a stepping stone that doesn't make sense. And this will always be true. And if you had said at that point that we should be working on this objective, that stepping stone would be eliminated and it would be impossible to have happened when it did happen. And so the real problem to generalize it is that um, search, search meaning when you're looking for things that will help you to get to where you want to go. So you think of like a search process. And in, in the field of AI, the word search is like a really common word that's used a lot. We think of search algorithms. But so think of just search informally, is just like you're trying to look for the, the path to where you need to go. Well, the problem is, that it is highly deceptive in complex spaces. And what deceptive means is that the stepping stones that lead you to where you want to go don't actually resemble where you want to go. Now, if you think about it, it's totally intuitive because if they did resemble where you want to go, well, then it would be easy and you would Mm. just go there. So we would solve these, cancer would be cured. Clearly, the cure for cancer doesn't look like – or the stepping stone that leads to the cure for cancer doesn't look like the cure for cancer. It's, in other words, it may come from a totally different field. You know, it may not have to do with biology or, or medicine or anything like that. Like, we don't know where these things are going to come from. Um, and That's just a property of all complex spaces. It's almost like a truism because like, if it wasn't a property, it wouldn't be called complex or hard. It would just be called easy. Hmm. Um, And so these are the problems that we actually care about, though. They're the hard ones. And so deception means the stepping stones are surprising, which means that, like, if we set objectives, we're going to blind ourselves to the potential stepping stones because they're interesting for orthogonal reasons. They're not interesting for the same reason as the thing that you're going towards. And therefore, we're going to ignore those things. And so that's. The objective paradox.
3: Yeah, when, when you start to explain it, it does, it, it makes so much sense and I, I guess the, the question then becomes for, you know, people who are, you know, you've you mentioned cu- trying to cure cancer a few times, uh, for people who are working on that problem and dedicating their life to that problem, what's your, what's your advice to them? Yeah. And, and I guess to even bring it back a step, you know, for uh, people listening who are trying to build and grow their own business. What, what's your advice to them if, if they shouldn't be setting those big, hairy, audacious goals? Yeah.
4: So uh, my general advice is if you want to be involved in blue sky discovery in general, which, which mean it doesn't necessarily mean just invention. I mean, it, it could mean like actually finding something really meaningful to you or, it, you know, it, it could mean an artistic endeavor. Um, there's all kinds of blue sky discovery that you can have in life. Um, But whatever that is, it's something where you don't really know how to get there. If you want to, or it's something that no one knows how to get there. But if you want to do things like that, which not everybody does, and that's fine, actually. Like if you just want to play it safe, like do things that everybody knows how to do. Like if you want to get a degree as an accountant, you could do that. (laughs) Um, We know what to do. The stepping stones are not. It's not because it's a bad thing to do. It's just it happens that that's not super ambitious because we know how to do it. But if we're thinking of, if you want to do something where it's like a big surprise, nobody knows how to do, it's going to be really like a revelation then the best thing to do is follow your gut about what's interesting. But the thing to understand here is that where that leads is not necessarily to any particular point. So you can't, I think, you can't say, here's this one thing, which is the thing I'm going to achieve in my life, and everything I'm going to do is going to be synchronized with that thing if it's super ambitious. Like, that's just as unprincipled because of the objective paradox. What you can do, though, is you can say, I will follow interesting stepping stones, which I don't know where they're going to go. Um, and I'm going to follow them anyway, because I, I, I trust my instinct for the interesting. And then there's a good chance that you will encounter something really interesting in the end, but it won't be something that you could predict. So it's not this thing that you planned out that you're going to get to. It's also important to note though, that, um, it's not like this advice says that you should, um, you, you should be confident that you are guaranteed to get to something special. There's no guarantee. Like obviously what we're talking about entails risk. The, the idea is that the opportunity is created for having something like really valuable happen by following stepping stones that are interesting, uh, but it's not guaranteed. And like, you, there's no way out of this trade-off. Like if you want to do something amazing, you have to take risks. And if you don't want to take risks, well then you should do something that's not amazing. And that's okay because you don't want to take risks, but you can't get out of it. There's no way to have zero risk and do something amazing. So this is an exploratory type of thing. And the other part of it is that this the, the word interesting is playing a really strong role in this. So, um, you know, I say follows interesting stepping stones. Like one of the, th- the principles here is that the reason that we're able to get to things like computers or like flight or these like amazing achievements that we've had is because people did pursue stepping stones for orthogonal reasons, but those stepping stones were not pursued because of those final achievements. They were pursued because they were interesting in their own right. And so it's the instinct for the interesting in the here and now, which is different than saying, where's it gonna go? It's more like, where have we been and how is this different in a unique and interesting way? That instinct is very important for exposing stepping stones that might be useful in the future, even though we don't know how they're gonna be useful, just like the vacuum tube. And so the last part of it is, like, you're asking about, like, within a company or something like this, or like, if we do want to cure cancer, what do we do? Um, I think that, um, yeah, this, this really forces us to grapple with uncomfortable truths, you know, because, like, it does suggest that if you just set up a big organization, organization and its basically goal is cure cancer, this is not a very principled thing to do. Of course, we don't want to hear that because we want to basically invest in curing cancer. What we can do, which is like the next best thing to, to actually do something that's principled, is to explore interesting stepping stones in the adjacent spaces, but without like this expectation that the cure for cancer is the thing that we're moving towards necessarily. I think artificial intelligence is similar in that like there, it isn't harmful to explore around the space of like alternative intelligent systems but we might admit that we have no way of knowing that these are going to lead to artificial general intelligence. We don't know or human level intelligence, but yet like exploring in this adjacent space is still likely to reveal some pretty interesting stepping stones, which could still lead to things that are valuable, but they may not be that thing. And it's similar in the world of cancer disease that like, we may not be able to plan like how we're going to do this, uh, like cure cancer, but we can like basically expose a lot of stepping stones in the vicinity And uh, that could lead to other really valuable things or someday long in the future, uh, it might become clearer what a path might be uh, to get to the cure.
3: It just makes me think that, you know, a lot of scientific research is, is very directed and, you know, a lot of grants are very directed and you have to be like, you know, I'm doing this for this reason, not just because I'm working on it because it's interesting. Is there... Like these findings, does it reveal maybe like a challenge with the way that we give grants and that like charities allocate money to different research projects?
4: Absolutely. Um, I think that the uh, uh, grant-making industry, if you want to call it that, or the institutions of grant-making are probably some of the potentially biggest beneficiaries of this news if they would absorb it. Um, because they're just severely violating the objective paradox, the way that they think. Um, and this is like ubiquitous across the world. Um, and it's a serious problem for these kinds of uh, industries. Like You have to understand that like in some industries, objectives are less toxic because the industries are more uh, oriented towards relatively modest aims. Um, And so, so there, this isn't as much of a problem. So, but in something like grant making, like the whole thing is about blue sky innovation, like that's the whole point, like to to discover things that we never could discover before we don't know how we're going to do them. So there, this is very, very relevant and salient. And so, you know, if you look at, and I have a lot of experience with grant making, you know, because I was in academia for like more than 10 years, and I was a professor. And in that time, I, of course, had to write at uh, request money and, and write grants, make grant proposals. And so what happens in that process is that you write a proposal, which usually you're expected. And they ask you to say what your objectives are. So there's problem number one. You're basically telling them an objective in an industry where it doesn't make sense to have an objective because of the objective paradox. What it forces you to do if you really want to achieve your objective Like if you want to be honest about it, which some people aren't, like they don't really expect to achieve their so-called objective. But if you do, then you're going to have to propose something that's easy. Um, And then we don't have like ambition and like real innovation happening. We have status quo type of mediocrity. That's problem number one. And then problem number two is how it's judged, which is basically there'll be a committee that tries to come to consensus over whether your objective is realistic and valuable. And so the problem with a committee, which is a a very objective-oriented form of a structure, social structure, because it moves toward, especially when it's moving towards consensus, because basically there's an objective notion of what's better and what's worse, Um, like this objective of like the best idea, you know, the best idea. And when you move to consensus, you just suck out all the diversity. You know, think about it. Like if I have something that's interesting, then I should be splitting the expert opinions. And not gaining consensus opinion and also what consensus leads towards convergence you know it means that we're moving towards an agreement and so if there's five people in a room and each one of them has something that they really believe is interesting that's different if they have to move to consensus we're not going to get any of those five things we're going to get some washed out happy medium that none of them find fascinating at all and this is how we're deciding this is how we're deciding what should be funded and so we are getting washout effects across the board, like things that aren't interesting to anybody um, because we have to come to consensus. Like The thing about stepping stones is we want diversity. You see, the thing about stepping stones is that what gives power to a system in aggregate, like an innovative system, like, say, this, the scientific community, is that there's lots of stepping stones. They're the things that you can use to get to the next stepping stone. If there was only one stepping stone in the world, there wouldn't be many places we could go, because you could only go from that one stepping stone. So it's the fact we have all these stepping stones, which you could call a repertoire or an archive. It's like all the achievements of humankind over the eons. Like Those are the stepping stones at our disposal, That's why we can get to so many places. But when you go through a filter of consensus, what you're you're doing is converging down and getting rid of the diversity. And the thing is like the thing that's for you individually like really triggering, like the thing that could lead you on like an adventure of serendipity, is just unique to you. It has to do with your background. It's unique to you. A separate committee of people will not actually have the same thing that could lead to their serendipitous journey. And so they can't tell you what's going to be really important to you. So the whole thing is just totally unprincipled uh, for it's the purposes that it supposedly set out to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and it should be, it should be in my opinion, completely reworked uh, from the ground up. Let's allocate some for doing things in the conventional way. I mean, if you're scared, you don't want to give up your objective security blanket fine, let's have like 50%. I don't know. We, it doesn't matter the exact percent. Just do things the old fashioned way. Fine. Like I, I'm telling you, it's not that great, but you'll get your mediocrity and it usually will work. But let's start allocating some resources and it must be everything towards doing things in a more principled way. And that's what I think we probably should do.
2: So Ken, as investors, we we spend a lot of time listening to management, assessing what they're saying. Talking about their strategic objectives over the next three, five, ten, you know, Zuckerberg talks about 30 years if they're standing up there though and saying that I'm just going to follow my instinct and follow what's interesting. And as a company, we're just going to uncover the next stepping stone that can be a little off-putting for people that are looking to invest Mm -hmm. in what they're saying for the future. So based on your research, what would you like to be hearing from these CEOs and company leaders that kind of gives you the impression that these leaders are more likely to find that blue sky innovation than the the business leader or entrepreneur next to them? So so two things.
4: The first thing is that um, there's a special case, which is important to identify, where it's okay uh, to identify something that sounds really ambitious from a leadership perspective, which sounds objective. And that special case is if it's actually only one stepping stone away. Um, Like, if it is actually possible, we actually do know how to do something. But the, the special case is special because... Those cases actually still require a lot of insight because what they represent is the recognition that things have changed in the world fundamentally. In other words, sometimes something snaps into possibility because a new stepping stone has actually been achieved, Um, maybe somewhere else, maybe within the company, maybe somewhere else, Um, but something novel has changed in the world. Uh, we've seen things like this, for example, if you want to just example, like a recent one would be the uh, image generation technology that you, that's like hot now in AI, you know, like that, that people recognize there's a new stepping stone. Like we're not totally sure all the things it's going to lead to, which is the whole point. Like that's why it's interesting. Um, but like we recognize it's going to lead to something. Um, and now someone is going to come out there and say things have changed and then realize what it actually does lead to. In other words, we don't need new technology. That is the new technology, but it enables something that we didn't realize was possible before. Then that's a, I think that's a great foundation for doing something innovative and, and maybe even like a new venture. Um, because it's like you realize before anybody else that something snapped into possibility. And it's not like there's no one, uh, nobody's any idea how we're going to do it. Like we can do it. And you can convince, you know, for an investor, for example, you can convince your board or something like we could do this. Um, And, and then that's, that's principle. It's only one stepping stone away. So the things that I'm talking about are more than one stepping stone away. But those that special case is important, because I think it accounts for most of what we call visionaries, like people who actually created something like that seems incredible, that we assign this mythological story, um, as like these amazing um, visionaries, you can see multiple stepping stones away and got to it. Like, I think the truth is they didn't see multiple stepping stones away. No one can do that. Um, There's no one omnipotent like that. What they did see is that something just snapped into possibility. And so that's something like a Steve Jobs and an iPhone. You know, like the technology was all there. And he'd been exposed around Apple to it, like, for years. He'd seen it. And so he just realized that he could build this incredible, magical thing, like, right now. It's actually possible and of course more goes into it than that there's a lot of design and stuff like that but that's the real thing that's going on there as opposed to it's like we're in the stone age and somebody's like let's make a, an iphone yeah. <laughs> that, that would be very visionary but like impossible so that's one that's one version that we need to be sensitive to because it's, it's actually something we, we should invest in i think and be aware of people who are like that and have that form of I think realistic vision, it's the snapping into focus type of situation. Mm. Now, the other side of it is this, what do we do with the, the problem of fostering innovation when there isn't a situation like that, but we do want to be blue sky? Um, like how do we approach that kind of a thing We need to be careful to disentangle the essential functions of any enterprise from this kind of blue sky exploration and say, first of all, we could preserve essential functions. Like we don't want to overhaul everything into this giant blue sky kind of treasure hunting search. That would not actually work because we still need to have a functioning organization. And there may be things that we do that we need to keep doing um, to make money or it depends on where we are. But then like there are other organs of an organization that should help you to to do this kind of blue sky exploration in the way that's actually principled. And it's important then to try to follow what is is principled, which is not the objective paradox. So you don't want to follow that kind of thinking, but that's the temptation. So you get things like, for example, you get these things like, um, you know, in-house innovation labs, research labs, like industrial research labs, which they build themselves as, like, this is our innovation center. Like, here's where the ideas are. We try things. We're open-minded, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, like, you go to those things, and somebody somewhere probably talking to the head of the lab is saying, oh, uh, you know, how is this going to affect the bottom line? Like, write a report. Write a report to us, you know, and um, we just want to – it's not like we don't want you to do research. We do, but – just show us like basically how we're going to fulfill our objectives because of all the stuff you're doing. And it subtly, it's subtle, but it makes it transform back into an objective organization. Again, like the innovation center itself is now an objective organization and you're back to mediocrity. Everybody's thinking like, I got to justify myself with an objective that's aligned with the company and where it's going and so forth and so on. And by the way, we should, we should keep in mind that like, it's essential to survival for I think especially larger organizations to have some innovation organ like that's really important because there's constantly this threat of disruption in it like, especially in technology and so you do need to think about this what we end up with is we end up with these kind of like mediocrity pursuing like um, veneers of research that are not really doing anything innovative and often there there sometimes is real you know innovative research i'm not I don't mean to be ridiculously pessimistic here it does happen but it usually happens despite that not because of it mm. Um, Like people find a way around, you know, it's like, I mean, professors do this too, like they'll, they know how the grant system works and that is utterly ridiculous. So they write the thing to to fit the model and they just do what they really wanted to do where they get the money. Um, It's an open secret. Um, And so like, you know, people step around the the system and find ways. So innovation is happening still, even in these orgs that that I'm criticizing. But if you wanted to really go for it, like make it so that it is explicitly about what it's supposed to be about, then I think, yeah, you got to completely overhaul that idea. Like you you need to free it from the objectives. Mm. And then what you're doing at that point is letting go of knowing how it affects the bottom line or even how it affects, I mean, you don't know that like, it it may affect the bottom line, but in a completely different way from the way you think about your strategy. Um, Like maybe it's a completely different thing we should even go into a new business we're not even thinking about, which will be revealed because of the circuitous path of the stepping stones that are unveiled. And so that might make, uh, some some leaders feel cold feet and like, whoa, that's really random. Like we don't know what to expect. Like, should we invest in something like that? But again, you have to remember there's two things here that are important to remember. One is that like we are still exploring around the vicinity of what we find interesting in that company. You know, it's not like you're gonna just you're gonna get a bunch of AI researchers and they're gonna all go start like start like organic farms out in out in some, <laughs> some other state or something like that. Like that's that's not a problem. Like, they're still going to be looking at AI questions and stuff like that. So so you're still going to be getting the the type of stuff that is of interest to the company. You have to remember that, like, what people find interesting is what guides us through non-objective search landscapes. So it's not like we're just doing random things. It's that the people there are researchers or the innovation people. They're making decisions about what to look at, what stepping stones to look at based on experience. Generally, that means, like, hire people who have good experience because they have good intuitions about what's interesting. And so you don't need to be as afraid. Like those people will find interesting things. That's what happens when you free people up who actually have a good sense of what's interesting. But what we're afraid of, and the reason that doesn't happen is that nobody really trusts anybody to decide what's interesting. We want everything to be held to quantifiable, accountable assessments and metrics. And if we don't have that, we're freaked out and we can't handle it. Hmm. And the problem is that interestingness is not amenable to metrics. You know, you can't show me a graph and show interesting this is going up because it's not an objective thing. It's a subjective thing. But that doesn't mean that it's random or unprincipled. It just means that it's too complex to quantify, you know, because it's basically like everything that you've ever experienced in your entire life is coming to bear on what you find interesting. Mm. Um, And like we have to respect that because we've invested, you know, decades of education into you to get you to that point. And that's because I presumably it's not just so you could look at a single metric and decide if it's going up, because that's something that somebody could do in first grade. The thing that makes you special at the point where you just like, you know, mature professional is those 30 years of experience developing an instinct for what's interesting and what's not. And we can even talk about it. You could tell me why. It's, it's not like it's, just, it's all just like private stuff. Like you can't explain why it's interesting and I can't listen to you and we all have to act ignorant you know, let's talk about it for several hours. You can explain, like, this is really interesting for all these reasons, but forget about telling me where it's going because we don't know.
3: You mentioned uh, Steve Jobs, you know, that was one stepping stone away. The other one that comes to mind, Elon Musk, electric cars, rockets, you know, we see it as, Uh, Mm. really visionary but you know it was one step away the technology was there Bryce asked about he mentioned Mark Zuckerberg and it got me thinking do you have thoughts on the metaverse is metaverse one step away or yeah what's your view on all of that yeah these are great examples
4: because they I think they show us how to apply this kind of um, objective paradox lens to kind of analyzing these questions you know Like, like something like is the metaverse, you know, like the, the the first type or the second type of situation, like, is it one stepping stone away or is it a very ambitious multi-stepping stone objective, which is not a smart thing to be pursuing? Um, and, uh, you know, of course, um, no one can know for sure. A Mark Zuckerberg would I'm assuming, presumably, if he listened to my argument and agreed with it, he'd say it's one stepping stone away because he has no other choice. Otherwise, he's basically saying this is stupid. You know, what was helpful is that we can now think about it that way. So, so basically, if I try to think about it that way, you know, I'm saying are the technologies that are necessary stepping stones to ubiquitous adoption of like a metaverse uh, really just like right here, right now? I, and again, I don't have an, I'm not an expert in VR, but, but I, my instinct is that it's not not here. What, what I think would be ubiquitous was if, clearly, if, if, if the VR was so convincing that it basically is indistinguishable from real life, um, then I think, yeah, that I could see mass adaptation, no question. But technology looks to me like not even close. I can't even imagine what that even looks like. I don't even know if it's a headset or what that is, um, but it's not even close. Um, and so I think it's multi, multiple stepping stones away. And I think that Mark Zuckerberg has, you know, kind of hitched the ship to something that is extremely risky because it's multiple stepping stones away still, I, I still respect at some level doing it, you know, because I, I think it's, it is respectable to take risks. Like, no, this is a case where, like, you know, people don't do this, but it's it related to when I say this is interesting, so we should do it. And then the boss says, no, you know, I don't know how, how this is going to work out. And so we end up doing nothing. And I think it's kind of cool when somebody actually says, let's actually just do it and try. Hmm. But the thing is, like, the motivation to me does seem unprincipled because he has he has an objective. It's not just saying it's, not just saying it's interesting. That said it I think the, like we could look at it a different way which is that it might just be interesting to look at all this stuff um, but it won't get to what he thinks it's going to get to you know so like we're not going to get ubiquitous metaverse forget it it's not coming for the next 10 years and by the way it doesn't mean we'll come in the next hundred years it may be coming but it's just not anytime soon. but even though we're not going to get there we might get to somewhere else because it's such an expansive thing and there's so many stepping stones being unveiled and like we're investing so much money, yeah, some of the things on the road are going to be valuable, and so that's still possible. You know, there, there could be—it's not—it's an all-or-nothing kind of situation, but uh, you know, on the face of it, I'd say um, it's not—it's not a really great objective bet um, mm-hmm. because it seems to be too far away. And we see examples of this all the time. You know, it's all about timing because you got to know if it's one stepping stone away to do something like this. So, like self-driving cars are another one. You know, go back to 2017 or so like everybody's saying self-driving cars, some people saying right around the corner, including Musk, although Musk's been right about something. So this is not an overall personal attack about him in general. But on that one, you know, it's just not right around the corner. Like the technology wasn't one stepping stone. We were overestimating what was there. Um, And here we are five years later and we still don't know when this is going to happen. And, you know, artificial or artificial general intelligence, um, like the kind of holy grail of AI is, is also like this, you know, where like there are, entire organizations and companies that are focused on this and um because it's just full of interesting stepping stones much value will be created but whether it will achieve that like that is an objective kind of a question it's completely a jury is out on that there's no way of there's no way to be confident about that
3: well kenneth we want to turn to ai but before then we'll just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors
0: say hello to a new era of mental health care
3: So Kenneth, before the break, we were talking about the objective paradox and we really want to turn to AI now because you've been an AI researcher uh, at universities and in organisations for a number of years now. And I I guess when we were preparing for this interview and thinking about the objective paradox in your book, uh, it it made us think about a lot of the research that goes into AI, a lot of the funding that goes into AI research. It often feels like there is a clear objective. And before the break, you mentioned uh, the objective to get to artificial general intelligence. Um, How do you think about uh, your findings with the objective paradox and how that translates to a lot of the AI research out there at the moment? Yeah,
4: it means that we should be circumspect about where our assessment of where we are relative to these kind of holy grail expectations. That's not necessarily a critique of researching AI and the extreme amount of value that's being uncovered by it. All of the leading uh, organizations have uh, much uh, runaway left to uncover all kinds of amazing stuff. But the question here is, are we going to get to AGI? That's just like, it, we don't know anything about what the stepping stones are like that lead to AGI. Now, there's some people who think we're one stepping stone away. Okay, so there are people who think that you know, if, if you buy that, then, then it is, it is, it follows that like, yeah, we should just invest and get there. Most people don't know all the stepping stones. Um, Like it would agree that we don't know all the stepping stones. So it's like, there's a few major ideas left necessary before we get to human level type of stuff. Um, And so it's, um, it's totally speculative. Um, Like when somebody says, you know, it's right around the corner and I mean, no one has a clue. The unfolding of history is very unpredictable. So, It could be that, um, you know, it it might happen within, you know, the next 20 years or something because some major breakthrough happens that we don't know what it is, some idea, like Einstein level idea. Um, But it's not the kind of thing that you can facilitate or predict. Like you can't say this is when this is going to happen if we put this much investment into it. And so, and we don't know how many Einstein level ideas we need. We may need several in a row. We may need dozens in a row. I look at it. Uh, There's something where I, I basically don't know. I, this is a position I don't hear that often from experts. Usually they have a strong opinion. Um, like, this isn't working. It is working. Like, I would say, I, I don't know. Like, we just, um, this is this is an objective paradox situation. Uh, we don't know what the stepping stones are. And uh, all I can say is that adjacent uh, areas are interesting. But whether we can get to the Holy Grail, we have no idea right now.
2: So, Ken, we're seeing some really exciting recent developments um, in AI come through, including GPT-3 or sort of natural language processing for those that uh, are listening along. What are you most excited about at the moment?
4: What's really uh, promising is this idea of amplification of human creativity in general at the moment um, with current technologies. Current technologies, they're not like people. Like I don't think of them as like you know, like slightly stupid people, or slightly younger people, or something like that. Like they're just not like people. Um, so it's not like a child or something. Like like GP or t- any of these language models, not like something that I don't have a clear analogy in humanity. It is something. It is something. Some fairly alien, um, which does do interesting things, but it's got like these holes that we still don't fully understand. You know, because these are conceptual holes like there are things that are hard to articulate because we're not even used they don't really exist in our normal experience of life to 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 interact with a being who has these holes so they're not fully understood yet and they seem to relate to really getting into like heavy analytic kind of logical deduction that it's just things break down they're unreliable in ways that can be unpredictable and this is therefore concerning currently the thing is though did they have enough of the veneer of Human intelligence that they can reveal things to us that clearly are revelatory. Like the art stuff, you know, it, it's there's the things of value that are being generated. Um, and um, language generation, I uh, wouldn't want to leave it alone. I wouldn't want to be friends with something like that or try to become <laughs> friends in concert with humans. Uh, interesting things can come from that. Um, it's, a, it's, it's an ideation machine, if used carefully and right. And so this is actually, I think, a really kind of virtuous use of AI is in the process of human ideation, because if you think about it, like, there's a depressing, like, version of AI where it takes over for us, and then we're just basically, like, toys or, or pets or something that gets taken care of. Uh, like, we don't basically have any reason to be here anymore. Um, we, creativity has no point, because every, anything we might create is just sucks compared to what it would create. So. No one's going to pay attention to anything a human creates anyway. Like it's kind of depressing. Like it's basically there's no, there's no point. And you know I don't think we as human beings um, just thrive only on consumption. Like we just want to in, in, you know consume media all of our lives and never output anything. Like output's really important to well being. I think and production. And so in some ways, like the idea that AI becomes a companion, but where the first class part of it is us. That's to me more virtuous in a way because it preserves like what the needs of human nature are, which is to be producing things, but just facilitates and amplifies that ability. And we have this opportunity. It's it's clear it's starting to happen that people can participate in areas where they couldn't have before. Um, like art or music or things like that because of having these facilitators, these AIs that help them to express themselves in ways that you would have had to have a lifetime of professional experience to do before. And that does seem exciting to get even more specific. Like one thing that, I mean, we've seen a lot of art, but man, music is just ripe for it. It's going to be really interesting. I think if, like, for example, you on your own, assuming you're not a professional musician, (laughs) could just sit in your bathroom and sing into your phone and then, like a few minutes later you've got a fully professionally produced top 40 rock song, you know, that would be absolutely disruptive and insane. And I think it's, you know, within the, the valence of the kind of stuff that we're seeing that things like that are possible. And so there's going to be some really interesting stuff and that's I guess. On the horizon, that's the kind of stuff that he's exciting. Wow. Yeah, wow.
3: Uh-oh. You think there's a lot of music on Spotify now. Just wait until AI music comes <laughs> along. Uh. Well, Kenneth, we we have almost run out of time. Um, and so we want to, first of all, just say a massive thank you for joining us today. One final question, uh, another thing that Bryce and I were sort of thinking about as we were preparing for this interview. It, it feels like AI, in, in our lifetime, maybe maybe in human history, that there, there's never been more divergent possible outcomes. On one hand, it could revolutionise every industry and benefit humanity and society in in numerous ways. And on the other hand, it's perhaps the biggest risk that humanity's faced and it could be existential. Like, it doesn't feel like with any other technology there's such a divergent set of possible outcomes. And then when you overlay the objective paradox where you can't create objectives and innovation and development is often a set of unintended consequences. Um, How do we properly manage the development of AI, the risk of AI when we can't set clear objectives and it's often the unintended consequences that matter?
4: Obviously, the answer to that question is extremely complex. um, So, I don't have a full answer to it. But I, I do think that that this, this these insights about non-objective search, the objective paradox, why greatness cannot be planned, do actually uh, bear on that question, because you know, it it relates to open-ended systems, which actually, that's the area I come from within AI, we call open-endedness. Systems that continue to create without bound, um, and you don't know necessarily where they're going, necessarily know where they're going. And civilization is an example of that. Evolution is another example, natural evolution. And so what I think we need to do is look to other open-ended systems to understand what we're getting into here. Because I think what what we're not appreciating is that what we are creating is more of an extremely rare kind of phenomenon in the universe. Um, It doesn't happen very often that there's an actual open-ended complexity explosion. One is natural evolution, you know, going from single-celled organisms to everything that's on Earth today that's alive. Um, But the other thing, like civilization, it's produced like all of the inventions of all of history. Um, which includes not just technologies, but artistic inventions and so on, social inventions, um, democracy, things like that. Like all of that is just civilization, the process of civilization. That's an open-ended system, and if you look at things like that, these open-ended systems are extremely unique and unfathomably powerful. You know, like the the thing that created all of living nature is like literally biblical, like in terms of like what it did. Um, and, you know, like civilization, because everything that you look at outside the window or inside your room, civilization is there. These are not normal things to be creating. It's not like a new kind of oven or something um, like this is actually a process that's being created. Um, and so to understand processes and the risks that they entail, we have to look at examples of other such processes. And civilization is a great example because it's very similar to what we're creating. You know, in some ways, like, we're trying to recreate civilization because, like, if you create AI, it's going to immediately start interacting with society. It might create its own society of other AIs. Who knows? But it's basically a, a social process that's been created. It's not just in a brain in a box. It's a process that's being triggered. It's actually the continuation of an already ongoing process, which is civilization. It's just going to be amplified now and sped up. And so we understand some things about these kinds of systems, you know, because, like, if you think about it, you could ask the same thing about civilization or about society. It's like, well, how are we gonna control it? We don't know what it's gonna do. Like, of course, like that's, that is a huge problem. Like this people are unpredictable and dangerous as all hell. Um, and so like we have a lot to be afraid of when it comes to society, but we've actually created um, systems, which are basically governments and institutions that try to channel all of that energy in a positive way, uh, on balance, it actually already grapples with a lot of these really like uh, difficult questions. Like, for example, like what are human values? You know, people like get, get kind of like t- tied up in knots talking like, how are we going to impart human values onto AI Well we don't even agree on what human values are? Like, we're all disagreement about everything. Um, well, the thing is, we've been grappling with that for thousands of years. Um, this is like there's there's an imperfect way, and maybe we can get better at it. But there, there is a way to try to, to convert to something where there's a degree of consensus um, and the outcome is somewhat reasonable. Um, and we're going to have to deal with it in that way. Like they're not, not going to just impose like what's right, what's wrong. Just is so naive to think that that's going to work here. We're going to have to grapple with, there's an open-ended system and an institutionally controlled, create incentives that can very carefully, and what it'll ultimately do is actually create a situation where some people will not allow machines to do some things, because the risk will be too high to the people, because the incentive system is set up, so people won't want to do those things. You know, you have to take responsibility when you commit a crime, or if you do something really dangerous, you don't mean to hurt anybody, but if you do hurt people... Well, it's your fault. You know, you're going to be responsible. It still has to stay that way, even when there's AI in the game. Mm-hmm. And so like, we have to figure out how to arrange things in that way so that the incentive system goes down to a case-by-case basis and people on balance and the institutions sort of bend around all of the complexity of what's going to emerge.
2: Well, Ken, you have left us with a lot to think about, that is for sure. Have thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today, covered a lot of ground. And uh, as people or as, as Ren and I try to grow our own business and think about objectives and uh, no, blue, sky no thinking, blue sky thinking, no more goals, blue sky thinking will uh, definitely have, uh, yeah, as I said, left us a lot to ponder. So uh, for the Equity Mates community, Kenneth's book is Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned The Myth of the Objective. If you'd like to uh, go and find that and read that, in more detail. Uh, But Ken, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um,
4: Thank you for sharing your time with us today. Likewise. I really enjoyed being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ken.
0: You have been listening to an Equity Mates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.